Bhutang Jeevitang Yawani Banang Dhammang Jeevitang Yawani Banang Sangam Jeevitang Yawani Banang Saranam Gachama The meaning of that chant is, for as long as life lasts, I take refuge in the Buddha, in the Dhamma and the Sangha until I realize Nibbana. I did it in the plural, on behalf of all of us, that we all realize the deathless, the liberation from suffering and the awakening to the truth, to the reality that we are all seeking to know. And we have work to do. So I wanted to bring attention to the first precept, to undertake the training not to kill any living being. This is a really important precept because just like a train, it's got two tracks. And the wheels follow the tracks. And if you want to go from Ottawa to Toronto, there's roads. We follow a road. We don't just drive in the fields. We'd never get there. So if you want to go from ignorance to enlightenment, you need to follow a road. And the Buddha was the map maker par excellence, the best. So he gives us a map. It's almost like nowadays, I guess, if you get into your car and you leave your devices behind and you sit in the car, where will you go? If you have no device, where will you go? You just sit there. But in the old days, we had maps. We followed these maps and they showed us the same thing, except it was a piece of paper it doesn't matter if it's paper or digital, but it matters that there's a road, and the road is to be followed. So the reason I bring up this precept is we want something from this practice. Why are you here? Maybe because a nice group of people, you feel lonely, whatever the reason is, it is a very skillful thing to do on a Sunday morning. Come together and listen to the silence. And what we tend to do with our minds all the time is we break this first precept in a very subtle way. Because not killing is about non-harming. And not killing is about not destroying the goodness within us. And we can easily destroy the goodness within us if we're thinking too much. So how do we spend our time day to day? Supposing you're in the kitchen and you're cooking a meal or you're making order in your room or you're sitting at work in front of your computer, how much time do we spend thinking about things outside of ourselves, things beyond our own physical experience, even. Like, 
not in the present moment, but in the past and the future. Sometimes your work requires you to do that, but in between the actual working, where is the mind, where is the mind spending its time? And very often we're lost in thought. If we're not lost in thought, we might be having a lot of opinions, which is also lost, lost in opinions, it's thoughts. Different forms of thoughts could be thoughts that are angry or depressed or overexcited or very happy. Many kinds of thoughts go through the mind. So you see that it's a constantly changing panorama. And we don't seem to have the ability a lot of the time to govern what the mind is chewing on. And it's really, really important if we want to train our minds. And notice the wording in this precept. The wording in all the precepts is, I undertake the training. So the training is, of course, there's no one here who goes out and kills people. But what do we kill in our life? Do we kill insects? Do we kill mice? Do we kill other people with our words? Have you ever stabbed anybody with an unkind word? Has anyone ever stabbed you with an unkind word? So these are things that we need to pay attention to. It's not the coarse killing, although that should definitely be avoided, but look in a more subtle way at how much our anger, resentment, our grief, our disappointment, our expectations, how much we kill the present moment by being caught up in unskillful mind states. We may not know they're unskillful, but that's really important that we learn how to bring mindfulness to the mind, to see what the contents of consciousness actually are and monitor that, monitor it well. Do you remember being in school as a kid and there were monitors in the school and we'd be playing and they would monitor to make sure we didn't rough each other up too much or leave the school grounds or whatever. I don't know what monitors do nowadays. If there are even monitors around, kids seem to have a lot of freedom and a lot of rights. But the training is not really about that. It's really about monitoring ourselves, monitoring our own conduct, our own speech, and our own mental activities. So we start by taking these five precepts, the first precept, it has to be strict. If it's not strict, we're going to get away with a lot. But it doesn't help us to not have a tight ship. If we want our ship to float, if we really want the deathless, we have to be very, very alert to how we're conducting ourselves. And you know, the monitor is like a conductor, a conductor of an orchestra or a conductor of a bus, is to keep everyone quiet and in their seats. And the orchestra is to keep the harmony 
of all the instruments. The conductor is up there making sure everybody's on key, in tune, in rhythm, in the right place, in the piece they're playing. It takes a lot of coordination. So mindfulness is about coordinating our attention in the present moment on every act that we're conducting, not only physically, but with our lips and also with the mind. And the mind, of course, manopubangamadhamma. Manopamana is the mind, the condition of our mind. That's behind all our thinking. So we have to look what state of mind we're in. We're very caught up with the weather. Everybody wants to know what the weather is, what it's going to be, how it's going to be, will it be sunny, will it be rainy, will it be snowy, will it be ice. But the weather of the mind is a neglected field, and it's much more important for us to be mindful of our internal weather, because if we can monitor the weather in the mind, as soon as we notice the weather going gray, we actually have recourse. We have the ability to restrain, to refrain, to conduct, to organize our conduct so that we don't harm anyone, so that we refrain from lashing out in the body, and probably most of us are good at that. But what about speech? And what about our thoughts? How many times a day do we veer off course because somebody has given us a look that we don't like, or we've been mistreated, unkind words, or we're feeling hot about a particular situation and we lash out, we lose our cool, lose our temper, or lose our ability to refrain from sending a sarcastic remark. And if this doesn't happen, great, then you're on track. Then you know the harmony, you're in harmony in the concerto of your life. You're on key. You're on the course. And Nibbana is there to be known and seen. You're leaning in that direction. That's so beautiful. That's to be cherished and treasured, to be followed and furthered, to commit to that. And commitment means that we watch carefully how our new conduct arises and to make sure that we're conducting it in the right direction, a good direction, wholesomeness, gentleness, kindness, compassion, rejoicing for the goodness that others now have and helping those that need our help as much as we can, helping ourselves. So I talked about forgiveness a lot yesterday. So I've given a few reflections and I'd like to invite you to ask questions, please. My question, Aya, it's about fear. When, when we have an illness or we're diagnosed with something very serious or anything that brings up fear, chronic disease or being diagnosed with cancer, how does one deal with fear 
not only in their in their formal practice but also in their everyday life it's a good question i think that the practice is really about being in the present moment and taking care of the mind and knowing fear seeing the fear of fear and see the fear first feel it in the body and see if there is a mind state that is obsessing with fear we have to deal with that it's kind of urgent we really have to sit down with that day by day and look at our fear and i would start myself with trying to use an object for the mind to focus on that is not fearful and that would be to look at the blessings of my life because the obsession with fear is ignoring so much and even if somebody is very ill there is still a lot of health if you meditate and reflect the mind is able to look at fear and see this as an impermanent arising fear is not solid it's not like there's a monster sitting in the room and even if it's an illness we are impermanent beings but we should start with looking at the impermanence of the fear in the mind i've known many people who have died from terrible illnesses and i've sat with them through their death and they have not been afraid so first we have to know that we're on a path and there is a practice and there is an ability for the mind to go to a place of non-fear we have to trust that we have to develop the trust so we take refuge in the dhamma take refuge in the practice and realize the blessings that we still have we have the ability to reflect to meditate we have spiritual friends we have kindness around us there are medicines and we will receive help and the help that we receive will strengthen us to be able to deal with the mind and bring the mind to a place of peace with whatever condition we're in if that's a kind of reflection that one can do it's helpful a second level of reflection is to sit with fear as the mental object and look fear squarely in the moment in the mind's eye and feel it experience fear as a physical embodiment what is it actually what is fear fear is actually a mind moment and there's a lot of me and mind it's like i'm afraid but who is this who is feeling the fear we're trying to break fear down into an empty phenomena in the mind arising and ceasing moment by moment and being picked up and clung to as something solid and something that prevents us from being with our condition all of us are in the waiting room we're all bound for death this is not something new and actually when we get this kind of sickness that can be predicted sometimes it's a wake up call not everybody 
just passes away from their sickness. But people wake up more and more because their time is shorter. We do spend a lot of time in our lives being occupied with things so we don't investigate the Four Noble Truths. The truth of suffering is that all of us are bound for death. But who are we that, who dies? If we're full of fear, then we're already dead. Because fear is a condition of the mind, is very blinding. So we want to wake up to the reality of the present moment, which is really to see the impermanence of the fear thought or the fear feeling. Is it tension? Is there a tightness in the body? Can we be present for that feeling and let it go? Just as a feeling, to let it go and see the ending of it in the body. See it as some kind of substratum discomfort. And maybe there is actually a lot of pain when one is sick and pain, having been in lots of pain, and pain is very compelling. It's a wonderful meditation object. If we study pain and investigate pain, we will also quickly realize the impermanence of pain. And we'll begin to see that there's, there's no one there. There is no one, no being that actually experiences the pain, but there is feeling, there is consciousness of pain, there's feeling of pain, and that also changes moment by moment. It, it comes to be, it lasts for a while, and then it changes into something else. This is important for us to study. Rather than being caught up in thinking about fear and thinking about the future and about the past and all the concepts around fear, this just feeds it so that fear becomes a tyrant and it makes the mind stiff, concrete, unwieldy, and unworkable. But the awakening to the truth is by being in the present moment and allowing the mind to be studied and understood more and more deeply as a center, a point where phenomena are gathering and circling, arising and ceasing. There's no stillness in the body itself, and there is no stillness in the thinking mind. But that's exactly the point, because there's nothing solid in there. There is no fear solidity. We make it solid through our thoughts. And if we can get an insight into that, then we'll start to discover more and more the center point, the knowing, the awareness of that fear arising and ceasing, the awareness of that conscious mind arising and ceasing, knowing the fear, even that is impermanent. But we can stay with it, stay with it, and keep it as empty as possible so that there is nothing to cling to, not even the fear. If we have no real fear to cling to, what do we cling to? Nothing. That's the whole point. We can stop clinging. When we can stop clinging for one moment, we teach ourselves how to stop clinging. 
If we can stop clinging for a few moments, then not only do we stop clinging, but we start to enjoy the fact that we cannot cling. And the mind becomes bright. It starts to have a brightness in it that is not clinging to anything, including life. Because the whole concept of life is just that. It's a belief. But there is no one or nothing that is alive except the awareness of that thought. That's it, and then it's gone. There's no solidity to hang on to. But we believe in our fear. And because we believe in it, it takes hold. It takes over, and we become a slave to it. We're, then we're really sick. We're more sick with fear than with cancer or with Parkinson's or whatever it is. But the sickness with fear can be cured. And the sickness of the body is incurable sometimes. But in the end, the body is not curable. The beauty of the Dhamma is that our true sickness and our true prison can be vanquished and destroyed. And that will be our freedom. Because we will no longer be a slave to the deluded mind, to its ignorance. But we will be aware of the Dhamma, and that will give us true life, true freedom, true joy, and the peace that we, we're hungry for. What more could we possibly want? There is no forever life. The most important thing we could do is wake up to the truth, even in our last breath. But we have to be competent enough to do that. So it becomes like an urgent project. It's a, almost a gift. If we look at knowing that we're going to have this much time to work and practice and free the mind from its delusion, then we get busy with that. We focus on that. And we work towards it as fast as we can, as thoroughly as we can, as well as we can, not killing time, not killing our wisdom by getting caught up in deluded thoughts, delusion about what is true and what is not true. And certainly fear is just a fantasy. As real as we might feel it is, it's just mind creation. It has no substance. And that's the sadness of the whole thing, that we're so caught up in fear, in anger, in greed, in grief, and we justify, oh, I'm grieving for this and for that. This is wrong view, wrong understanding, and wrong ways of practice. And the world encourages it, advertises it, gives us medicine for it to make us feel better. But actually, that's not palliative care. The palliative, the real cure for this is to wake up. There is no death. There is the deathless if we wake up to that. We've been told that our bodies are really wired for fear. It's our default position. How do we deal with something that is so conditioned into us as part of our survival? 
to practice more awareness of what the condition of the mind is and to move it to its center point, to the truth, through mindfulness, through clear understanding, through being present and not letting the mind wander into idle thinking or compulsive thinking or the believing what we're told or following the status quo. There's a lot of training to undo how we've been trained. It's hard work. It's a gradual training. This requires a big commitment. We have to be patient and work slowly but gradually chipping away and re-sculpting our condition, our status, our understanding, the opening our eyes more and more to the truth. Stay with people that are doing that and do it more and more. Devote time to that in everything that we do, in everyone that we speak to, and choose wise friends who will encourage this kind of activity. Otherwise, we're going to die ignorant. But if we can die wisely, that will be an incredible blessing. Death is guaranteed. We can prepare for that. But most of us are just frivolous. We're just spending our time in ways that we want to, but not wisely. And this is an illumined wisdom. It's not just worldly wisdom will tell you to go sit by the beach. Read a good book about how to climb a tall mountain. I say, climb that mountain. Don't read about it. Climb it. Where do you climb it? In here, in your heart. Where else? We need cleats. The best kind of cleats is this meditation practice. The more we do, you can do it even while you're boiling the kettle, even while you're opening the door to your car. I don't think you use a key, maybe you use a button. Well, that little moment of pressing the button, where is the mind? Is it already in the car driving away? Is it remembering that nasty conversation you had in the house or at work? Where does the mind go? We just have to train it. We went to visit a family and they were showing us how well-trained their dog is. Our dogs are well-trained, but we're not so well-trained. And we can't do it. It just takes the knowing that we can do it, trusting we can do it, applying ourselves to doing it, and keep, keep on. Like, practice makes perfect. We may never be perfect in what we think is perfect, but we can be more mindful. We can be more nonviolent. We can be more skillful in where the mind is in the present moment, how often it is in the present moment, and even in the present moment, not being critical and not being mean, but being kind and compassionate. The Buddha gives us all these instructions and a lot more. Thank you. So I've been collecting things to hang on to. Signs from my best friend, messages from the other side, the Dharma. How do we let go of everything? 
The Dhamma is not out of you, it's in you. You can never let go of the Dhamma, really. But we have to know that. We have to let go everything else to know that. And then we understand that everything is just as it is, and it's just fine as it is, whatever it is. There's nothing wrong. Yes, there is wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood, all of the Noble Eightfold Path, but people are living out their kamma. We cannot change that. But as far as our own mentality and our own physicality, that will just peter out the way it will. But if we can know the truth of the Dhamma, then we will have finished our work. By and by, there are stages of finishing. And the whole point is to let go completely so that we can abide with the Dhamma completely. That would be the total peace. And yes, your best friend is no longer your best friend, but you would have no enemies. So there isn't a best. It's just you would have unconditional love for all beings. Unconditional compassion for every being. Even a scorpion. If that little scorpion has a mum that thinks it's the best creature in the world. And we would have unconditional peace. There would be nothing in this world, the changing of which, the diminishing of which, would bring disturbance to our mental peace. What a wonderful thing. And if we can know that, a great blessing for the world. So we wish that for ourselves, and this practice will help us get that. So don't cling too hard to whatever you're clinging, but stay true to the Dhamma.